This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down on the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, multi-Oscar winning costume designer Jenny Bevan reveals why fashion is usually the last thing on her mind. Writer Elena Demopoulos dismantles the misconception that Gen Z are tech savvy. And actor and author Katie Wicks recalls the near-death experience that changed her relationship with her father forever. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, with 30 years in a cutthroat industry and a possible fourth Oscar under her belt, thanks to the film Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, Jenny Bevan is a force to be reckoned with. Here she talks to Amina Sena about her bohemian childhood, her early work with Merchant Ivory, and how she deals with difficult actors. Read by Rebecca Traherne. If you spot a woman trying to surreptitiously take a photo of you on the bus, you'd have to look interesting. There's a fair chance it might be Jenny Bevan. I am the biggest people watcher ever, says Bevan, the British costume director who is up for her fourth Oscar next month. She took a secret photo the other day, she says, of a fabulous woman. I don't know whether she was from a sect or something. She was wearing white and had the most extraordinary white hat on. She was amazing. She looked like a sort of strange clown. I snuck a photo. Elements of it might make it into a film. I might be doing something to do with ghosts. But it will be squirrelled away in Bevan's mind, even if she can't find the actual photo now to show me. She sighs and puts her phone away. We are sitting in her office at the back of her beautiful London house, where she has lived for more than 30 years. Bevan has a straightforward, no-nonsense manner, but she's also incredibly warm, her grey curls bouncing around her face, so the effect isn't austere but fun and surprisingly comforting. 
If you were a film star, you would think nothing of telling her all your secrets while she was dressing you. Does she get good gossip? Oh, yeah, she says, with a glint of mischief. It's like the confessional. Thank God I've got a really pants memory and can't remember a thing, because I do hear some fairly intimate stuff. I've been very good. I've never divulged. Bevan's house is filled with collections and curios. Though done with such an expert eye, she started as a theatre set designer, that it doesn't look cluttered. Her office is lined with books. Histories of Palestinian costume, Indian art, the fashion of the French Revolution, and on and on. As well as some of her awards, including her four BAFTAs. Where are the others? She looks a bit sheepish and says they're elsewhere in the house, because there are so many. She started in period costume. Bevan was Merchant Ivory's go-to costume director, winning her first Oscar in 1987 for A Room with a View, and nominated over the next few years for films including Howard's End, The Remains of the Day and Sense and Sensibility. She did the costumes for Gosford Park and The King's Speech, then showed she didn't just do period Englishness, when in 2015 she did Mad Max, Fury Road, the fourth film in the post-apocalyptic franchise. It brought her a second Academy Award. Cruella, the 70s-set origin story of Cruella de Vil, followed that. This time she is nominated for Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, a charming film about Ada Harris, played by Leslie Manville a cleaner who falls in love with a Christian Dior gown belonging to a client and sets her heart on getting her own. It is set in the fifties and the clothes are, of course, wonderful. You have to believe that a dress could be so exquisite and made with such haute couture artistry that Ada becomes obsessed with it. But even the floral tabards she wears while she's cleaning are a thing of beauty. Bevan's ideas come first from the script then she throws herself into research, creating mood boards. I never draw. I think it's two-dimensional. I can't draw, anyhow. Bevan is in her early seventies now, and although she has enjoyed not working for the past few months, she is thinking about her next projects. I'm not sure what I'd do every day if I didn't work. She grew up in London, where her mother and father were professional musicians, her father a cellist and her mother a viola player, both had come from unconventional families. On her father's side, her grandmother had been a pianist for silent cinema and liked to take her children off to communes, and her grandfather had been a founder member of the Cardiff Anarchist Society. Bevan's mother, meanwhile, had been sent off to chamber music schools from the age of twelve and was really into vegetarianism and homeopathy. Bevan and her sister went to a school based on Frobel principles, which prioritised learning through play and ran around in bare feet, never had television. We had a wall in the sitting room which we could draw on. We were always making things out of cornflake packets, just really creative. It was a happy, bohemian childhood. Not derailed, it seems, even by the death of her mother when Bevan was 14. A distant relation they called Aunt Poll came to live with them and brought her two children, and so it seemed as if her world expanded, not collapsed. I think we just all sort of accepted it, and then Paul coming was wonderful, says Bevan. I'm terrible, I just accept things. It's quite worrying sometimes. 
Her mother's death must have affected her, though. I always feel it should, but I can't honestly think of any way it did, she says. I think we were much more stoical then. When Bevan was about ten, her grandfather took her to see Twelfth Night. I just fell in love, she says. I didn't know about all the backstage stuff at that point. I wasn't certain I wanted to act. I just wanted to be part of that magical world. She went to the Central School of Art and Design, learning from the theatre designer Ralph Coltai. He never even considered film. That wasn't a true art. And he also said, I needn't worry about the costumes. I could always get someone else to do them. She worked for the Royal Opera House and others. Anyone who would have me. In the 70s, a childhood friend, by now working in TV and commissioning a merchant ivory film, brought Bevan in to do the costumes. She had no plans to go into costume design full-time, but merchant ivory kept calling and she found she enjoyed it. Set designer friends joke with her and say, at least a chest of drawers doesn't answer you back. But I like the interaction with a real person. It must be an intimate job. Very, and it's very nurturing. It's more than just putting clothes on them. You're very much there as a sort of therapist, mother, all of which I enjoy thoroughly. Can actors be difficult? I like most of them enormously, she says. Yes, a few are tricky, and normally it's nerves. I think because I'm very down-to-earth, we normally get on well. Also, I listen to them. It's teamwork. It's not just me saying, that's what you should wear. It's about their response to the character. How does she deal with difficult ones? Don't show a chink. It's particularly two women I'm thinking of, and I'm not going to name them. But you just say, okay, let's see how we can solve this. You hold your nerve and you're fine. Directors are the same. Again, the difficult ones are normally quite inexperienced and feel they have to make their mark. And the costume department is an easy target. Everybody wears clothes, so everyone can have an opinion. It was really tricky times, she says, to be a young woman working in film in the 80s and 90s. It was the days of the unions when it was like a mafia, and particularly in wardrobe there were a lot of men. They didn't like young female designers, and I wasn't allowed to be called a designer because I wasn't in whatever union, so I had an absolute loathing of unions because they made my life really difficult. Completely different now, and I think the unions are more useful. It was a feeling of constantly being belittled, just making me feel inadequate rather than sexual harassment. There were always other people far more attractive who probably did have problems, she says. She worked with Harvey Weinstein. He was so uninterested in me. I remember my agent saying, Harvey, this is Jenny, and he went, huh, and walked off. Great, I had no problem. She says she didn't hear of anything going on with Weinstein, but does remember working on one film and having to refit a new female actor, one that Weinstein wanted. I have no idea what that relationship was, she adds. For a while, Bevan largely kept her head down and kept working. She was a single mother to her daughter, Caitlin, often taking her and their nanny away with her when she was on a job. It was great. It was also tough, but I couldn't have stopped, she says. 
In recent years, as her power has grown and her mortgage decreased, Bevan has become more political. At my age and career, I have no fear about speaking out. What's going to happen? Disney aren't going to employ me again. So? She has publicised the pay gap between wardrobe and other film departments. Does she think that's rooted in sexism, because costume is largely female-dominated? I think that's absolutely part of it, she says. I have a good agent, but I'm pretty sure production designers get pretty much twice what I get. The commercial possibilities for films are heavily based around the character's looks, for which the costume director is largely responsible. Think of all the kids' costumes you can buy, for instance, or the fashion tie-ins. But costume directors and their team don't get a cut. Costume is the one thing that is going to make money, and I think it's outrageous, says Bevan. It's also the sheer disrespect that we put our lives and soul in, working lunatic hours to give them these looks, and then they own it. I don't think that's right. One US fashion company created a collection based on Cruella. This disgusting range of clothes, vaguely red, white and black. I didn't even know. I thought that was rude, and boy did I tell them. It is the general dismissal of her craft, and the people who work in it, that enrages her. I don't think they did it maliciously. I don't think they even thought about it. Total disrespect. They have no idea what we do to make those actors go on set feeling confident, right, not even thinking about what they're wearing. They just think it's all about fashion. She says that last word witheringly. Does she take much notice of fashion? I absolutely couldn't be less interested, she says with a laugh. I hate labels. I'm interested in people, not clothes. She did become fascinated by Dior, but she was drawn to the history of the house and people who worked there, rather than the clothes. She gives very little thought to what she wears, only to be comfortable and clean, she says. When she won her Oscar for Mad Max, she collected it wearing boots and a Marks and Spencer faux leather jacket, and it caused a sensation. There was something defiant in her ordinariness. It said a lot that people were not used to seeing a normal-looking, older woman being celebrated, and that even at Bevan's level of success, she was still being judged by the standards of 25-year-old movie stars. That's completely ridiculous, she says. It's fine. I don't mind people looking at me and thinking what they're like. I'm not normally on stage. She doesn't like wearing dresses, she says. But also, I thought, I'll have a bit of fun. She had added biker touches in honour of Mad Max, and when she collected her Oscar for Cruella, she bought a cheap jacket. I wanted to give money to Ukraine, not spend money on me. Then, having recently joined the Costume Designers Guild scrawled their slogans calling for equal pay on her white shirt. It was fun to wear. And it was comfortable, that's the main thing. None of it is vanity. All of it tells a story. But will she wear a Dior dress next? That wouldn't be fun enough. She went to the BAFTAs the other night, where she was nominated again, dressed as a very chic cleaning lady accessorising with a feather duster. That was I Couldn't Be Less Interested in Fashion 
the designer who dressed Mad Max and Cruella, and changed the world by Amina Sena. Read by Rebecca Traherne. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly ebay gets it so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch stitch sole and logo is checked by experts with ebay authenticity guarantee you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach ensure your next purchase is the real deal visit ebay.com for terms Welcome back to Weekend. Now, they may be digital natives, but young workers were raised on user-friendly apps, not the far less intuitive devices you find in an office. What it reveals, Elena Demopoulos discovers, is a surprising reversal of a generational trope. Read by Kenton Thomas. Garrett B. Miller, a 25-year-old New Yorker, has spent his entire life online. He grew up in front of screens, swiping from one app to the next. But there's one skill set B. Miller admits he's less comfortable with. The humble office printer. Things like scanners and copy machines are complicated, says B. Miller, who works as a publicist. The first time he had to copy something in the office didn't exactly go well. It kept coming out as a blank page, and took me a couple of times to realise that I had to place the paper upside down in the machine for it to work. B. Miller usually turns to Google for answers, but he's also found an alliance with some older workers, who are veterans of the copy room and can swiftly purchase shipping labels on the office UPS account. B. Miller knows that the expectation is that he'd be the one helping them out with tech issues. There is a myth that kids were born into an information age, and that this all comes intuitively to them, said Sarah Dexter, an associate professor of education at the University of Virginia. But that is not realistic. How would they know how to scan something if they've never been taught how to do it? Gen Z workers tend to be well-equipped to edit photos and videos all from their phones or use website builders like Squarespace and Wix. They grew up using apps to get work done and are used to the ease that comes with Apple operating systems. Their formative tech years was spent using software that exists to be user-friendly. But desktop computing is decidedly less intuitive. Things like files, folders, scanning, printing, and using external hardware are hallmarks of office life. Do they know what button to press to turn on a bulky computer monitor, when many simply close their personal laptops when they're done with them? No, says one Reddit user who works in IT, and has resorted to putting a sign over the power button on work computers. 
Steve Bench runs workshops on generational differences in the corporate world. I joke in my sessions that my Gen Z intern didn't know how to mail a letter, he said. They asked me where this sticker went. I said, do you mean a stamp? The tech company HP coined the phrase tech shame to define how overwhelmed young people felt using basic office tools. According to the study, one in five young office workers reported feeling judged for having tech issues, which made them less likely to ask for help. And in another survey, the employment firm LaSalle Agency found that almost half of the class of 2022 felt underprepared when it came to the technical skills relevant for entering the workforce. Dell used its own survey of respondents between the ages of 18 and 26 to find that 56% of respondents said they had very basic to no digital skills education. A third of them said their education had not provided them with the digital skill they need to propel their career. What they know comes from the apps they use on their own time, not the tech suppliers at Office Depot. And so we come back to printers, which remain especially difficult for Gen Z to crack. When I see a printer, I'm like, oh my God, said Max Simon, a 29-year-old who works in content creation for a small Toronto business. It seems like I'm uncovering an ancient artefact in a way. Simon, who makes humorous videos about corporate life for his audience of over 220,000 TikTok followers, falls into the category of young millennial. He considers himself something of a shepherd for Gen Z staff who feel lost navigating Google Suite and other quotidian software. I'll invite them to a Google Meet and they'll say, how do we get a link to that? But the link is already in the calendar invite, Simon said. Like, it's 2023. This is the world that we live in. Things that seem pretty straightforward often catch Gen Z off guard. For Simon, it's another problem to blame on the brain-melting power of social media. His hunch, apps like Instagram and TikTok are so easy to use that younger people expect everything else to be a breeze too. When it's not, they're more likely to give up. It takes five seconds to learn how to use TikTok, he said. You don't need an instruction book like you would with a printer. Content is so easy to access now that when you throw someone a simple curveball, they'll swing when they miss. And that's why Gen Z can't schedule a meeting. When it comes to accomplishing simple tasks, sometimes Gen Z has to get a bit creative, or downright evasive. Elizabeth, a 23-year-old engineer who lives in Los Angeles, avoids the office printer at all costs. I feel like I just haven't been taught things that some people consider basic knowledge, and I'm too shy to ask, she said. B. Miller, the publicist, accidentally killed one work laptop because he didn't know how to ask for help. Every morning when he turned it on, he would be greeted by a pop-up from the storage service Dropbox, which he always accepted without reading. After a few months, the computer began to run painfully slowly. It often died without warning. Bimiller could not get any work done, and his manager ordered him a new laptop. By the time the replacement came in the mail, IT had figured out the issue, and it was completely avoidable. As it turned out, Every time B. Miller accepted the pop-up, it gave Dropbox permission to back up everything onto the computer's disk. At the same time, it gave the computer permission to back up to Dropbox. It was constantly backing up everything onto itself, he said. Murdering that poor laptop is still so funny to me. Sometimes, bosses bring in experts to help with the divide, 
Jason Dorsey is the co-founder of the Centre for Generational Kinetics, a research firm based in Austin. Managers tap him to lead workshops that unite employees of all ages around their mutual computer struggles. In one exercise, he puts attendees in a circle where they share the different technological advancements they remember living through. It's extremely humanising, Dorsey said. You'll have someone who remembers the first colour TV, another person who remembers the first answering machines, and a kid who can do their job on a smartphone. It helps us recognise that diversity of these experiences is a strength. But there's at least one thing that sets tech-hopeless Gen Z workers apart from their older co-workers. Younger people seem more willing to learn and can quickly adapt to new skills, even if it takes a few rounds at the printer to fully master the art of scanning. Gen Z is very comfortable navigating software they've never used before because they've been doing it their whole lives, Ben said. They are used to trial and error. They may not be this godsend to the workforce who come in automatically knowing how to do Excel, but they're fast learners. That was Scanners Are Complicated Why Gen Z Faces Workplace Tech Shame by Elena Demopoulos Read by Kenton Thomas And finally, until her mid-twenties, Katie Wicks had a difficult relationship with her dad. But after a near-fatal car accident threw their worlds together, they slowly started to reshape their connection. Read by Rebecca Traherne. Good dads are all alike. But every shit dad is shit in his own way. When I was little, I used to worry that my dad loved James Bond more than he loved me. When Bond films were on... He would shush me when I asked if we could watch The Simpsons. He was a tall man, jammed with sadness and mystery. He worked late in a job he didn't like and slept in the day. His dream was to have been an actor or an artist, but these weren't practical choices for a man from a small Welsh town who left school young. I would catch him crying at the news or singing songs from musicals when he did the washing up and didn't know we could hear him. But apart from that, he was remote. Other friends' dads had a comfortable, confident ease where they would loudly give an opinion and everyone had to fake agree. I longed for mine to have some of that, whatever it was. My dad was only really relaxed when he was holding a drink in his hand and could be left alone to watch another man drive a fast car and wish it was him. He was frightened by anything that challenged him. He went his whole life without trying hummus. Sometimes I would stay and watch the Bond film, just to be in the same room as him. But it made being a woman look awful. This glimpse of my future life, whether women were there to move the plot along or be aggressively kissed until they stopped wriggling, frightened me. I remember thinking, when I grow up, I'll never have blonde hair or drive a car or be a woman at all. I'll find a way out and I'll always be in charge of the TV remote. The first thing to do was never to get hips. So I started skipping meals. The morning it happened, my dad and I argued. I was 25 and hungover. He kept saying, we're running late. 
as we set off for the train station. We bickered about what music to play. Me, the white stripes. Him, silence. You're looking very thin, he said. The baggy purple shirt I had started wearing wasn't enough to hide how little I was eating. He turned off the white stripes. Can you not comment on my body, please? I snapped. You're nearly as thin as your mother, he said. He looked over at me. I looked out of the window. And it happened. There was a horrific bang of metal on metal from the right side of the car. Something had hit us at great speed. The violence of the impact sent my body forward and up, and then we were spinning and spinning. My body was forced in the opposite direction, down and back, into the curve of the car seat, as we turned uncontrollably and I was held in place with great force. The pressure of the seatbelt cut and scraped into my collarbone and upper stomach, and my head was pinned into the headrest at a weird angle, with my mouth half open. It was an effort to make a noise, but I did. I heard myself scream, Oh God, no, no, no! over the crunching burst of brakes and the shrill squeaking of tyres. I wondered if we were upside down or not. I only knew that we were moving through the air, without warning, as if I had been walking along, minding my own business, and then suddenly placed mid-loop on oblivion at Alton Towers. Somehow the spinning got quicker. My hands gripped the rough-cushioned material of the seat on either side of my thighs and my teeth slammed together. The baggy purple shirt billowed as if it was moving separately from the rest of me. I thought of what we must look like from the outside, a car moving through the air. Any witnesses must be thinking, I'm glad that's not me in that car. I wondered when the spinning would end, and I wished I could ask the people watching if I was going to live. Then we hit something else, and there was another bang. My head jolted forward, as if I'd headbutted the air or done a huge sneeze. My dad never made a noise. Then everything was quiet and still, except the white powder from the airbags hovering above the dashboard and an immense heat in my chest. We had come to a stop in the middle of a dual carriageway. I'm dead, was my first thought. I've died at 25. I had such potential and now I'm dead. I'll never go on a panel show and I'll never fall in love. I've died. I looked down at my body. There was no blood, but I could taste some in my mouth. I looked over at my dad. He was slumped in his seat not moving, eyes closed. I'd remembered from watching Casualty that you should repeat the person's first name to keep them conscious. So rather than use Dad, I began to yell his name to try and wake him. When the paramedics arrived, on hearing this, they asked if he was my partner, and then I died for real, of embarrassment. I didn't feel the pain until I was in hospital. The tears fell down my cheeks and onto the pillow, making it wet, because I couldn't wipe them away. A nurse massaged my hand open, because my fingers were still so tense from where they had gripped the seat. My shoulder, collarbone and sternum were all broken from the force of the seatbelt. 
I imagined this line as a perfect crack through my body, like the crease down the spine of a book, or the line of fate on a palm. A bruise formed in the next few weeks, like a dark purple sash. The seatbelt had saved me, and broken me. My father was in a different room. He had fractured his skull. As I fell asleep, I remembered he was looking at me just before it happened, and I wondered why he hadn't been looking at the road. I wished we hadn't been arguing, and I wished he didn't love driving like he was in a film. And I thought about all the times I felt unsafe in cars with men and didn't speak up, and why it took me so long to notice my own emotional terror, let alone find the right words to express it. I thought about the boys in school who drove too fast, and how we got in the car with them just to be close to them. Girls would come in on crutches, because they had older boyfriends who drove recklessly. And all we would think was, Wow, she has a boyfriend. And our skin would flush with the excitement of the future as we signed our names on their cream casts. The next few months passed by in a haze of opioids in a box room in my parents' small Welsh cottage. I had forgotten my MySpace password, so at least I didn't have to see photos of friends getting on with their lives. I was meant to be travelling up to London to see Wicked and a Sarah Kane play. At mealtimes, I would be lifted up to an angle high enough to eat soup and then lowered carefully back down. My hair grew long, as if I was putting down roots. My periods stopped, as if my body was conserving energy and knew it wasn't the time to have a baby. There was nothing else to do but masturbate at half speed, nap, and dwell on the past. I read all of his dark materials and hallucinated polar bears in the mornings. It was a long, lonely time, incubated in my own imagination. Dad's bedroom was next to mine, and Radio 4 came through the walls at night. The police had said the crash was just an accident, just an unlucky blind spot. It was no one's fault. But when I heard the Now Show floating from his room into mine, I was angry that he had forced me to put my life on hold and nearly killed us both. I thought about how we had argued just before it happened, and how he should have realised it's not good to drive on an argument, and how I should have said that I felt a sense of doom in my stomach just before. When Mum went out to work, she would leave crisps and sandwiches for us, My dad and I would meet in the kitchen once we were both able to stand. We would politely ask each other which flavour crisp the other preferred, or report something funny the dog had done. After a few weeks, we began going on small walks down the road. When we reached the house with the stone toads, he was out of breath and had to lean on a telegraph pole. I'm sorry, he kept saying. But I wasn't sure if he meant sorry about not being able to walk any further, or sorry for driving the car that day. We talked about how to not get piles when you're on strong painkillers, and whenever I laughed, my broken sternum filled with pain, and he would wince, as if the pain was his, too. We began to talk about what happened. He couldn't remember anything about the crash, and I remembered everything. 
He told me about who his favourite artists were when he was in his twenties, and how he was worried his mind wasn't as good since the crash, and that he couldn't remember much about his father anymore, who died when he was young. I told him about how difficult I'd found life since university. He told me how insecure he was at having left school early, without many qualifications. On the final walk, he asked for my forgiveness. He started painting again. He never drove after that, or watched Bond films. They now had nothing to offer him. They never showed the consequences of driving like a dickhead. I don't remember the bits in James Bond films when he injures his daughter, or has to have a nurse to help pull his pants up, or receives a get-well-soon card from Nat West. When I moved to London, Dad sent me postcards... Sometimes it would be of Brecon on a sunny day. Sometimes it would be a little sketch he had done of a castle. On the back, in his scribbly, unconfident handwriting, he would say something funny that the dog had done, or tell me he was proud of me. By the time he died, my anger towards him had gone. Recently, an older man kindly offered to give me a lift home after a work-do, he was coming to the end of a loud anecdote about the cocktail book he got for Christmas. But I wasn't listening, because he was driving so fast. I was flooded with adrenaline, in a post-traumatic trance of silence and compliance. But then I realised that the car could hurt me a lot more than his opinion of me. I thought of my dad. "'Can you slow down, please?' I interrupted." He went very quiet and still, and looked at me with furious confusion in his eyes, as if it hadn't occurred to him that women's minds were real. We drove slowly and in silence for the rest of the journey. I felt a warmth of relief in my chest, and I downed a mango smoothie without asking for his permission. I didn't want the car to be a metaphor. I just wanted it to be something that got me home. That was My Dad Wanted to Be James Bond. He Nearly Killed Us Both by Katie Wicks. Read by Rebecca Traherne. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Rebecca Traherne and Kenton Thomas and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.